0: Yeah, I'm um, looking around and I'm feeling amazed. I got up this morning at... Uh what my friend, who uh, whose lifelong career was a flight attendant, used to call, I got up, she used to say, I got up at O-Dark-100. Uh, I, <laughs> I got up very early in Chicago, which was earlier here. So it's been quite a long time since I've slept, but I got up very early this morning in Chicago. And I flew here, and here I am. And from the middle of downtown Chicago... And the middle of a family wedding with hundreds of people and tremendous amounts of stimulus going on. It was great. I had a wonderful time. Here it's so quiet and it's so nice. And I'm sitting here and it's really beautiful. I think this must be one of those heavenly realms when they say when they are reborn in heavenly realms. So I'm glad you're here. You know, every instructional talk... Um, a Dharma talk and any other kind of a talk. Any instructional instructional talk that's um, on behalf of imparting a skill or teaching something really has to have three parts to it, I think. The first part has to be, um, why are we doing this? It has to be some sort of explanation and motivation. What's going to happen if I do this metta? What do I hope is going to happen? There's a book called um, Dharma Road, written by a taxi driver, and he said, when people get into my taxi, he's a Zen student, he said, when people get into my taxi, the first thing I ask them is, where do you want to go? He said, because that's the most important question, in a taxi and anywhere else also. (laughs) So it's really important. Why are we doing this? Out of the blue, this is an odd thing to do all of a sudden. Leave the world and come here and write valentines in your mind all day long to this one or that one. It's an odd thing, except if you have a big view, I think it's the least odd thing that we can do. And I really think it's the path to a liberated, happy mind. So to really talk about how that's the case and how I understand it to be like that, why are we doing this and then how do we do it and then talk about the technical ways in which we are working here because we are doing what is as do- Donald pointed out a little earlier it is a practice that is a lifestyle really and we don't finish here and then go out in the world and say well okay that's it you know now we this is what we are trying to develop as the habit of a sweet mind and the habit of a mind that responds with forbearance, and generosity, and goodwill. Not only because it would be a better world if everybody did, but we'd have such happy minds if we lived in a place that could respond to the uh, uh, absolutely inevitable vicissitudes of life. So how do we do this? What's the practice here and in the rest of our life as well? And then the third part is how does it work? How does what we do here, the somewhat peculiar way of living, work to change the habits of the mind? So that's what I want to talk about. I'm very much um, guided in all that I think about metta practice. Oh wait, I have to ask a question. For how many people is this their first retreat ever in the whole? Great. Terrific. Wonderful. For how many people is it your first metta retreat? Also wonderful for how many people how many people have done a mindfulness retreat also great and wonderful it's all great and wonderful so one of the things that I deeply believe is that on some level mindfulness and loving kindness are the same practice they have different technical ways of We do different things. If this were a mindfulness retreat, we'd be talking more about being aware each moment as it arises of what is arising and what's my response to it and how do I feel it in my mind and my body. And the intention that really uh, goes along with each moment of a mindfulness practice in, in each moment of your life, whether we say it or not, is, may I meet this moment with ease and grace? May I meet this moment fully? May I meet it as a friend? Even without saying that, if the instructions are, be there for each moment, moment after moment as it arises, then if we had to give captions to those wishes, those mind states, those would be the captions. May this moment arise in a way that I can handle it without flinching, and, and receive it sweetly, and deal with it wisely, if we were saying words. And when we are doing metta practice, we are adding the more, um, oh, maybe it's like giving it a nudge, by adding really the words, say, okay, I really want to meet this moment, this thought of this person, this thought of that person, this thought of myself, not only with ease and open-mindedness, but I want to meet it with really warm kindness. To even want to do it is already um, an expression of wisdom. To be alive as a person is a hard thing. It's difficult to have a life. Often, I hadn't thought about it in a while, but it just popped into my mind. My grandfather, who was very, very old and had no formal, when he died, had no formal education in any language in his life, but seemed to me a very wise person. Used to, in times of difficulty, when things were a strain in our family, or things were going wrong, he would sigh a huge philosophical deep sigh, and he'd say, it's very hard to be a person. But it is very hard to be a person and have all the things that we have as people, hopes and dreams and bodies and aspirations and attachments and want everything to go well. And there's always problems with things. And there are wonderful, beautiful, delightful things. And we don't even think about that. We don't say, whew, whew, whew. But really, a lot of our lives are delightful gifts. And we really... Startle when they're not delightful gifts and how to meet it all with kindness and with poise and with wisdom, really. So I actually think that mindfulness practice and loving kindness practice are both different iterations of the same practice of developing wisdom. It's wisdom of how to live in a life that's inevitably challenged all the way from the beginning to the end I'm often I'm reminded of the story of someone saying to the Buddha, Are you a god? and he said, No. And they said, Are you a regular man? And he said, No. And they said, Well, what are you? And he said, I'm awake. And I think it should that story to be better would then follow up with the next question. If I were awake, what would I then know that you already know? Because really that's the whole uh That's the whole discovery of insight and wisdom, that life is difficult for everybody because it it presents challenges of loss or potential loss, and that it's possible to live it wisely, that peace is possible, and that we can develop skills, those very skills of meeting each moment with warmth and with openness. The first line of uh, one of those um, more archaic, Uh, metaphrases as Donald gave the whole list of many different phrases that people choose from to choose the first line a first line that really touches me is may I be free of enmity and danger it's maybe my favorite beginning line may I be free of enmity and danger and in the beginning I think I thought that it meant may nobody be after me May I be free of other people's enmity. And I'm actually quite sure that what it means is, may I be free of enmity. May I not have anybody on my list that I haven't made space for. May I, not have, a warm, may I have a warm heart on everyone, especially myself. Sometimes I say it as, may I be free of enmity, and the danger it would pose to my well-being, or maybe, may I be free of negativity, and resentment, and contention. I remember maybe on my first retreat, now decades ago, I thought to myself, I thought it was very clever, too. I thought, if I, if I decide to have a war with life, life is going to win, so I'm not in charge. But you figured that out already. So, if I wanted to answer the question, if I were free of enmity and danger, what would I be? I'd be happy. I'd feel safe, because I wouldn't have any enemies, inner or outer enemies. I wouldn't have bad feelings about myself. Nobody would have bad feelings about me that I knew about. I wouldn't have bad feelings about me. I think I'd be amazed when my mind is not preoccupied pushing away on anything, negativity. I'm amazed. Look what's happening. This morning when I was flying across country, every so often I'd have a negative thought. Happens. Uh, I'm flying in this big United Airlines bird, flying along, and I notice just in the beginning, hey, there's no television in the back of the seat in front of me. There's that little dinky television up there. So first of all, it's far away, and I don't see it well, and I don't even know what movie it is that they're playing. And when I flew there five days ago, I had my own personal little television here, and I'd had many channels, and I could watch the news, or I could watch Comedy Central, I could do it all day. So I think, why don't they have that thing here? They have that. And I, and I realize that my mind is saying, fooey, woo. And actually, I thought to myself, may I be free of negativity and danger? I started to laugh. I had to do it quite a few times, actually, in the course of it. <laughs> it's a very crowded, the planes, and you start to think, it's so crowded, look at this. May I be free of negativity? And the truth is that every time I did that, and I, I started to laugh. Because as soon as I thought to myself, may I be free of negativity and danger, I'd start to laugh. Because it's just a thought. It's a stupid thought, really. And for the thought, because I can't change it by thinking it, it's a grumble, that's all. And the minute I think, may I be free of negativity and danger, I start to laugh. And then I am amazed. I think to myself, I'm cruising along at 35,000 feet in a flying living room. You know, it used to take people months to get from Chicago to San Francisco. And I'm going to get to San Francisco in four hours and 19 minutes. That's magic. That's magic. But you have to remember to stop the negativity, and then it's all amazing. And the other thing is, if I really weren't confused by negativity, I'd be really compassionate and kind. Because we are. We're strung that way. It's part of our neurology, if we have good neurology and reasonable upbringing. We're a companionable species. We tend to want to take care of each other. And when I'm not confused, when you're not confused, we take care of people just because we do. It's a much... When I do that, I don't feel lonely. I feel like I'm accompanied in a world. I look at all these people and I think, hey, this is my club, the flying club, going to San Francisco. It makes it much easier. So that's why we're doing it. I thought about... Three. Uh, I kept thinking all week of little examples of what would it be if the mind is free of negativity and how do you get that way. Well, I, I, uh, I was at a wedding. I was at a wedding last night. Uh, my husband's family is vast. He has many first cousins, and they have progeny, and some of them have progeny. And we went, I went, and he went from being the new people on the block in the family scene over the last 60 years to being the old people on the block and everybody else down. And they live all over the place, and then when somebody gets married or someone has a bar mitzvah or a bat mitzvah or something that's a wonderful thing, everybody comes. And I really, really wanted to go because I don't see these people otherwise. So you get together and here's this big room. And after the ceremony, some of you may know that it's become traditional to have a very fast communal dance that looks very tribal. People leaping up and down and running around in circles and nothing that's an organized, stately dance, but loud music and jumping up and down and people running. and It's great. And and for a long time, I always had a little worry that some, Uncle So and So might overdo or something. <laughs> but, but everybody up there and doing that, and and this, and everybody is ecstatic because the, these beautiful people have just gotten married. And we've had food, we're having food before and had food after, it's a beautiful room, we're all dressed up, we see people we haven't seen in a long time, everybody's mood is way up here. And I look around and I realize the room is full of some people that if I thought about it, I'd think that person I really like. This person over the years has been consistently annoying, and this person over there never came through on so-and-so, and this one, he really did his wife w- wrong, and if I took the time to do that. But when the mind is elated, it doesn't do that. It looks around and it says, look at these people. Thank goodness, they're all alive. The mind gets lifted up out of all this. You forgive everybody, all their stuff. You think everybody's just who they are. They're just doing their thing they can't do it another way and it's such a pleasure to forget your little list of who did what to whom so I think about that the Tibetans have a saying they say all defilements are self liberated in the great space of awareness when the mind is open enough I think about that. I see that literally like awareness is in my head which it isn't it's all I don't know where the awareness is but I don't think it's in my head it just is but I imagine that my head was suddenly open, so all awarenesses, self, uh, all defilements are self-liberating in the great space of awareness. I see all these defilements. So and so, he did this wrong, and she did that wrong. They're all flying out of my head in this great open space. I've thought about it, if you have a room that's enormously large and it has um, coat hangers all around. And you have stories, the old stories that you could remember. So-and-so, he did this, she did that. You could hang that story on a hook and run with it, except if the walls were too big, then you can't reach the hook, so the stories go out of your head. It's great to do that, and it's a a relatively safe high. You come down after it. You know where I saw the same high? uh, Well, I see it all the time, but I thought about it particularly uh at the end I've been seeing it uh, particularly at the end of ball games recently. end the ball game, it's not that big of a deal. It's just the ball game is over. Even you just clinch the pennant. It's not that big of a deal. But here are grown men. they all run out on the field, jump on each other, leaping up and down. It's the same sort of thing, patting each other's back, slapping each other's behinds, jumping up around them. <laughs> And you look at them and say grown men. They're people they you know, they get so excited about it and it's lovely to watch. It's like a communal rite. And I think to myself, you know, Everybody is hugging everybody. And I imagine, I'd like to think that those teams are all friendly with each other and they have a good esprit de corps, but I don't know that everybody likes everybody the same. But you see, they're all hugging everybody. Nobody's saying, well, you, I'm not hugging him, I'm hugging that one, I'm hugging, but excuse me, I really want to hug that one. Everybody hugs everybody at that point. All distinctions become unnecessary. There's a lot of talk these days in spiritual circles about recognizing the non dual essence of reality. But you know, everybody's just playing their part, but it's it's just everybody being together and a in a team, that's all. Everybody gets excited. there's no partiality. And the pleasure of not having to say these are my best beloved, you know, and we and we do work with those categories. These are my benefactors. These are my best beloveds. These are my semi-best beloveds, slightly less best beloveds. <laughs> these are the people who I recognize in a crowd, but I don't think about when I don't see them. So we do do that out because it works functionally. It's a very good system psychologically, to really seduce the mind into discovering if it hasn't already discovered it that loving everybody indiscriminately is a really wise choice. That doesn't mean condoning things. doesn't mean taking leave of your uh, ability to, uh, to be able to determine what's wholesome and not wholesome. It just means free of enmity and negativity, but not free of discernment. You can have discernment and choice and wisdom, I love that thing, the jumping around on the base. I was really, just because they're such—they're all men and they're so big, and it just looks so funny. But uh. <laughs> you know what that looks like when they're all running around and being impartial about it. I thought I, I think about the great way the first the first line of the faith verses of the third Zen patriarch. I think this is the first time someone's put that in the same sentence as a baseball play game. <laughs> the first line of that great way is the great way is not difficult for those who are not addicted to their preferences. In that moment, it's impartial. You just you don't have to remember this 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 this. That we can just do everybody. We can hug everybody. The metta sutta, if you look on Google, is sometimes called the Google's teaching on impartial kindness, which is lovely. It means just impartial kindness. doesn't mean you forget who everybody is. I love that metta sutta. Are you chanting it at night? Is that We'll do it. Uh, sometimes maybe during the course of this week together we'll get to look at certain lines but it's got certain lines first of all I could make a big speech about every one of these lines being the most important line in the whole thing what I'd like to say at this moment is that the most important line in the whole thing is two words omitting none wishing in gladness and in safety may all beings be at ease, whatever living beings there may be, omitting none. That means he can't even hold out a little bit of reserve. Well, okay, the whole world I love, but not that person because of what they did. That, it's so painful to, to really mortgage the real estate of your heart be on on behalf of some thought about something that person did something or is doing something you can remember it you can take appropriate wholesome steps but why give away the why give away real estate why give it away away your capacity to care I think when I do that, or when I catch myself grinding over some grudge, I think about the way that I am holding myself hostage in some way. What gets held hostage is our ability to love wholeheartedly. Which is really the practice, it's the promise of this. Not to like everybody, not to condone, not to like, but to wholeheartedly, really based on wisdom, not because you arm-wrestled your mind into fatiguely out of fatigue it says, okay, I give up, I love everybody. Not out of that. Out of a really deep understanding that everyone is exactly who they are, doing exactly what they're doing, because they couldn't be otherwise. That's really the profound meaning of karma, that we are who we are, doing what we're doing. It doesn't mean we're bound to do it forever. I could change, and anyone can change, right now, and spin out a rest of a life. But at this moment, I've been trying very hard to take the word should out of my, uh, really out of my speaking. I catch myself sometimes, I might catch myself doing it this afternoon, but one of the lines... um, one of the sentences that comes up in the mind it's a sign that the mind has gotten caught on an imperative and can't be happy is it shouldn't be like this this shouldn't be happening whatever it is shouldn't be happening it is happening what it really means when i say shouldn't be happening it means i wish it weren't happening i can say i wish it weren't happening but it shouldn't be happening it is happening I see, I still do that little gesture. I learned that from, or I copied it from Ajahn, uh, Ajahn Sumedho a couple of years ago. He said, When my mind gets all tied in a knot, I say to myself, It's like this. That's how it is. And then my mind feels better. And I, I just was so moved by that. I, thought it was absolutely a tra- I felt it as a transmission, a like giving up of the resistance to it. I met him a few years later and I'd been teaching all over the place teaching, Ajahn Sumedho said you look around you say it's like this and then you're alright your mind gives up that stranglehold I said "So thank you very much I'd, I'd say what you said and I'd do that gesture he said I said that <laughs> I made that gesture <laughs> I think he did it doesn't matter, I do You know, equanimity is not saying yes to a situation. It's saying, okay, this is what's happening. I learned this from um, my, my colleague and uh, uh, at that point my teacher, since I was sitting on retreat here last March. And I hadn't ever quite heard it that way, but Gil said, equanimity is the ability to say, okay, it's like this. I wonder what's going to happen next. I love that. It's so not depressing, you know, because that's the truth. Everything is like it is, and everything is going to be something else next. And if I th- and what catches my mind, I think it's what catches people's minds, but I know it's what catches my mind, is something is like this, and then I think, well, now forever it's going to be like this. But it isn't forever going to be that. I don't know how it's going to be. Maybe it's going to get worse, but it's not going to be like this. So this is what's happening. I wonder what's going to happen next. Gives my mind a little hit of energy in it. Huh. I'll look around to see what's going to happen next and what I can, what I can um, cultivate wholesomely. I want to talk a little bit about if that's what we want to do, really, develop the habit of having the mind not be in contention with its experience. We do this on, on retreat. We do this, a systematic practice of blessing. Sometimes it's called the making of intentions because we uh, we inherit the the. The um, the term, may I, which Donald pointed out, some people feel is like asking permission, or it, it doesn't resonate comfortably with them. Um, I think of it as uh, really my own wish, may it come to pass, that I feel safe, you feel safe. The making of, I like to call I think of it as blessing, because I, th- I think uh, blessing in or out of a religious context, um, you can't bless at the same time that there's negativity in your mind. It's like trying to drive your car and forward and reverse at the same time. It won't go that way. I remember somebody asked... Um, I hadn't hadn't remembered this in a long time. I was at a um, week-long teaching that His Holiness the Dalai Lama was doing, uh, teaching a particular chapter out of the Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life. And they were different ways, the whole week were different ways to uh, address the mind that has come into resisting the present situation and what to do, helpful hints for doing A or B or C. And anyway, at the end of the week, for the li- at noon, he announced that uh, that afternoon for the closing session, we would be doing an empowerment. So rather than just continuing to study text, there would be a certain ritual empowerment, taking of a vow. And um, he's about to adjourn, the 2,000 people are there. And someone in the back had a question, and he s- took the question. The question was I'm really a uh, practicing Catholic, I'm a devout Catholic, and I'm not sure about taking a vow in another lineage. Do you think I should? You think it's all right? And uh, His Holiness thought for a minute, and then he said, Yeah, I, I think it's all right. And then we adjourned for lunch. And two hours later, we came back and everybody's sitting in their place and the Dalai Lama comes in and he does his prostrations, and he sits down. Everybody does frustrations, they sit down. And I think he's about to start the empowerment. And he said, I've been thinking about the person who asked about, is it okay to do this empowerment if you have a connection to another tradition. So I was so moved by that. You know, I had the feeling like, here we are, so many people. And he has this lunchtime. And that he seriously went off and thought about it. I don't know how much he thought about it, but he thought about it. And he said, this is what I think. He said, I think there are different religious lineages, but compassion is compassion, and a blessing is a blessing. And I think it's fine. So I like the word blessing. I like the word blessing as really the expression of may good things happen to you and blessing myself may good things happen to me. Actually I uh, I'm always touched when um I'm teaching in uh, with colleagues, these wonderful colleagues, any colleagues, and I'm reminded of the the fact that many people have trouble holding themselves and, and blessing themselves and do better finding some intermediary and coming back to themselves. And I feel very, um, I feel lucky that that wasn't my case. My own story was that I began to do metta practice 10 years or so after I'd begun mindfulness practice. And I did it at a very stormed up period of my life, so it's not necessary to go into what was going on. But I was desperate. I actually wasn't very interested in it. I thought it was Valentine's, and it didn't interest me. I'm sorry to say that I feel silly about it now, but when I started to practice, I found that not only was it easy for me to say blessings for myself, but I loved it. I felt immediately better, and then I was given the instruction after a couple of days to now uh, wish my benefactor good things. My benefactor was my teacher that I had chosen. Uh, my benefactor is and was Sharon Salzberg, who taught me Metta. And I thought, oh, okay, I'll do a little. I'll, I'll do my four phrases for Sharon. And I began to do my four phrases, which were different from what I say now. I did my four phrases for Sharon, did them again, did them again. And right away I was saying for myself again. I said, this is not so nice. You know, I should at least give her equal time on the phrases. But the truth was, I was not so excited about wishing her well. I thought she was pretty well. And I didn't feel good. And I felt better blessing myself. I felt, you know, so maybe all these years when I come clean about that, it's to let you know maybe I have a little nagging guilt about But the truth is I don't. Because the real truth is it doesn't matter who you bless. It matters that you bless. It matters that the mind and the heart become in the mood of blessing. Because in the mood of blessing is the opposite mood of the mood of antipathy and negativity and enmity. The mood of blessing. It's a very interesting uh, just popped into my mind. In certain Orthodox Jewish communities uh, where people devoutly feel that everything is the work of the divine, the answer to any question that people might ask in everyday speech, hello so and so, how are you? Thank God. How's your wife? Thank God. How's your business? Thank God. How's your children? Thank God. You don't know anything about how is the person really or the <laughs> wife or the business or the family. It's the appropriate correct answer that means things are what they are because the divine is in charge and I'm not it's it's my place just to um, make space for that. And there's a way in which, sometimes when I tell I tell it, people laugh. But, uh, you know, there's a way in which this is what's happening. Maureen Stewart was a Zen teacher who died in the last decade. And people say, I, mean, I think it was Maureen Stewart, about whom people say her last utterance... The last utterances of Zen teachers are particularly admired and people save up their pith teaching for the end. What she is said to have said is, thank you very much, I have no complaints. And I love that. Because I, I not only would like to say that when I die, I'd like to say it when I live. Because that would really be a sweet mind that didn't have complaints. It's how it is, you know, this it's what's happening. It's like this, little It's like this. So how to do it? And how does it work? It's really changing the habits of the mind. I, even like the example I gave you, two examples I gave you, one of them was catching my mind this morning every time it said Phooey, should have had a TV here. And Phooey, they should have had better snacks in the boxes that came by. and Fooey, we, we're almost at San Francisco. And uh, I thought, oh good, I'm really gonna be here in time, I'll have plenty of time, get the bus. All of a sudden, I look out the window when we're in the descent, and the landscape is wrong, and we're going south instead of, you know, you always land into the north, coming up from the south. Now we're going south, and suddenly I'm flying over the San Jose airport, going the other way, and we're (laughs) fully, what are they doing? Probably protecting many people's lives by not crashing into another plane or something, but... But the mind gets annoyed, like my my plane isn't landing now. And I catch myself, and you think, what's the matter with you? <laughs> but you know, because then you, you find the mind, er, they should be landing. They should be landing. So little things like catching the mind in a, in a snit like that, fooey, I catch that. Or it should be like this. But here on retreat, we have a chance to do something else we have a chance to really do the technique of repetitions of phrases of blessing, which not only point the intention in the direction of blessing, point the mind in the direction, incline the heart in the direction of goodwill, and then allow it to feel the pleasure of goodwill, so that it has kind of a feedback loop, so you feel good from it, and then you want to do it some more and some more and some more. But also the doing of it, again and again and again, has the effect, first of all, the rhythmicity of the phrases. We didn't talk a lot about saying them in a certain rhythm. Some people like to say their phrases on a breath, in and out, then they say another breath, phrase, another breath, and another phrase. I don't necessarily, sometimes I do that, but not so much. More, I let the breathing breathe itself. And the phrases have a certain litany phrase. Sometimes I sing them to myself, but mostly they unfold in my mind like I'm saying a chant. I'm not mostly saying the metta chant. I'm mostly saying, may I feel safe, may I feel happy, may I feel strong, may I live with ease. That may I live with ease is a holdover from what I first learned thirty years ago, I guess. It's a holdover. Uh, I began by saying, may I be free of danger, may I have mental happiness, may I have physical happiness, may I have ease of well-being. I said that because my teacher said, say that. She didn't say, make up other phrases, or do whatever you want. She said, say that. So I did, for about ten years. Um, And in the beginning, I thought, I don't know exactly what this means, but I said it anyway. And the thing that I discovered is that by saying them over and over and over again, they became soothing. I think the rhythmicity of them not sure exactly what mental happiness is. I mean, I, I guess it's happiness. I guess it means that it's translated from the Pali. And I heard that live with ease means may I have um, enough to eat and shelter and medicines if I'm sick. It's kind of up for thinking about monks. And I haven't ever in my life not had ease of well-being in that way. But I think of it in the broadest sense, may my life unfold with ease. I actually have thought about changing over to another phrase that's part of a uh, now widely circulating metta chant where the last phrase is, may I take care of myself happily. I kind of like that, may I take care of myself happily. But I have the other thing. so. So here's the the truth. I mostly say, may I feel safe, and I try to feel safe in my body because it has a cognate feeling that goes with it. Say, may I feel safe? And somebody asked about what if I feel and what if I don't feel. I just, I say it, and I hope I'll feel. Sometimes it resonates and echoes back that same feeling. Sometimes not. But I'm also interested in the rhythmicity and the continuation of it. So everything counts, whether or not it resonates exactly that feeling. What counts, I think, the most is that it should be continuous and probably rhythmic because that's comforting, like hearing the waves on the on the shore. And when the mind when the when the mind is becomes more concentrated and it's steadier, then it startles less. It just does. It has more concentration and more steadiness, more equanimity. Then if something happens that would be a fooey, it's, oh, broccoli again for lunch. Not really so fond of broccoli, but it's not a big deal. It cushions, a, a concentrated mind cushions what happens to it. Does that make sense? It just does. Concentration has all kinds of um, characteristics. The concentrated mind is steadier. Concentrated mind um, doesn't startle so much. It's calmer. Concentrated mind actually is pleasurable because sometimes it's accompanied by really sweet feelings in the body, like warmth or kind of um, sometimes it's called rapture really delighted body feelings. When the body and mind are feeling delighted and at ease, it's as if they don't feel like getting mad at anybody. It's not worth it. If you feel all good and sweet and nice, why would you start to bring up some grudge and grind it over in your mind and mess yourself up? It's not just, so it becomes, in a certain way, um, um, a feedback loop that builds feeling pleasant and warmly inclined is such a pleasure that it's, um, it's, not, so, uh, it's not so seductive to carry on a, an, an annoyance. It's actually so strange to find how easy it is to become annoyed about whatever, someone banged the door. Someone banged the door. You know that it's just seductive sometimes to do that, but it does it less. You'll see it in yourself as this week goes by. You know, I was I was cleaning, my, I was moving some clothing from one closet to another and giving things away to the goodwill, and I found a. Um, I found a t-shirt, that, a sweatshirt, that I must have gotten 30 years ago. I've forgotten, it was way in the back of the closet. And it has a, a statement on it, you know, there was a time when you sent away for, I guess, it, I don't know, whatever you call it. Um, anyway, this one says, Try meditation. It's not what you think. <laughs> but it's from 30 years ago, and I think that what it meant I don't know what it meant. I don't know what it meant. I think it meant it's not what, it's not weird or, or something like that. But I, if I were making that sweatshirt now, I would say try meditation. It is what you think. And it has a lot to do with what you think. Thinking Sometimes thinking gets a bad rap. Like, my, you know, whatever I do, I can't stop my thoughts. Great. That's very good because it's a grievous thing if thoughts stop. Sometimes when your mind is very, when the mind is very, very concentrated, you don't have a lot of discursive thoughts, you certainly don't have ruminative thoughts, but you have awareness, you can have perceptions, those are thoughts, just got cool in here, just got cool in here, that's pleasant, that's a thought, that's not a troubling thought, it's a perception. So the idea that thoughts won't arise, they do, and certainly in the, in the and and the slowing of th- of discursive thoughts or even perceptions when the mind is very steady on long retreats. Don't expect that to happen in a regular life. We think all the time, but I'm very interested in the nature of the thoughts that I have. It's actually the third foundation of mindfulness, the kind of thoughts that are there. Are they grumbly? Are they lustful? Are they in any way um, afflictive? That's a great word. I had—I had a, I had a uh, you can say I had an attack of afflictive thoughts because really that's what they are. I need that. I hate that. I can't stand being here. I'm so bored. I'm restless. What's going on here? Those are all afflictive thoughts, you know. Otherwise, you sit here quietly and you say, "This is gorgeous. This is Eden. This is wonderful. How lucky I am." It matters what we think. And forget to think the kinds of things that hold the mind up. If I listen to the thoughts that my mind manufactures, I see how many views I have. Oh, this isn't a good thing. This shouldn't, well, again. This isn't a good thing. This is good. This is not good. This is fooey. This is great. One of the lines, which is maybe my second most favorite line in this whole thing, coming very near the end, this is said to be the sublime abiding. Then we could have a long talk, maybe we will one night, or a short talk about the, the line, this is said to be the sublime, one should sustain this recollection. We could have a talk about what recollection is it that we should sustain. Maybe that'll be some evening talk. By not holding to fixed views. It's such a big deal not to hold to fixed views. I changed my mind. Okay. That's really so freeing. Maybe I could see it another way. It allows the mind to relax because then I don't have to hold, I don't have to hang on to all the data I have that cause me to be sure of this view. I don't have to lose my wits to not be uh, held captive by my views. I could think them over. Hmm. That's what I'd written here. I think I could take the vow. On behalf of training, I'm going to try not to have fixed views this I like, this I don't like everyone's doing the best they can everybody's doing the only thing they can the cause of suffering is the imperative in the mind that things should be different from how they are and they're not In the end, I think I said earlier that what I really loved about the mind that is in a just a wildly open, loving way is uh, that life is so amazing. So I don't, don't have to get stuck in what is happening, that what's happening, but the mind can move to that it's happening, which is one step up. I remember as a child having a f- poetry book, a picture of somebody um, swinging way up and down, children's poetry in a swing, and uh, Robert Louis Stevenson, the world is so full of a number of things, I think we should all be as happy as kings. Just, I say, look at this. That, that, that kind of joy, at the, joy at life, along with compassion, because it's so easy to miss it and get caught in the stuff. There is a lot of pain in the life. Not only the pain that we make in in the mind with our thoughts, but the pain that people cause other people because of greed and delusion. So there's, there's that in the world. And the fact that the planet itself is in such a desperate situation. I've started to read Naomi Klein's new book called, uh, This Changes Everything. And it's so... I feel like the world is in such a perilous place. It's like a huge baby that really everybody has to take care of all of a sudden. So that it'll revive. And for everybody to simultaneously take care of the whole world, they'd have to get to take care of themselves and each other first, so they could take care of the whole world together. I very much take heart from being able to say about anything, it's like this. It's what's happening, rather than it shouldn't be happening. It's what's happening because of everything that has happened human and not human that's made this situation now so it could change and human beings can change it it's like uh, Gil saying equanimity is okay I wonder what's going to happen next I'm thinking okay I wonder if people are all going to fall in love with each other in the whole world and pull it out at the last minute that'd be great My friend Ajahn Amaro says when he leads meditations, he says, let the mind and body assume the natural peace and ease of the mind and body and just stay that way. I love that. That's like so reassuring, like you just could. And pay attention, he said, when it doesn't stay that way. And wishing yourself well... Here, in a um, continuous, intensive way, is a way of building up that muscle in the mind that can arise and put itself to use whenever the mind startles over something, flinches over something. I think what we're trying to do is fall in love with being alive which would cause us to take care of ourselves and each other. One of the um, instructions that I wish we gave all the time, we often do it with metta practice, but I think we should do it all the time. When they say sit down or walk, we should say smile. You know? We could have that little smile of the Buddha. I'd like to read a poem to finish. This is one of my great gurus, Billy Collins. I was reading this book and I thought about that answer to the question: fast the Buddha, what would you see? What would I see if I were awake? What do you see since you're awake?" This is called aimless love. This morning, as I walked along the lake shore, I fell in love with a wren, and later in the day, with a mouse the cat had dropped onto the dining room table. In the shadows of an autumn evening, I fell for a seamstress sitting at her machine in the tailor's window and later for a bowl of broth, steam rising like smoke from a naval battle. This is the best kind of love, I thought, without recompense, without gifts or unkind words, without suspicion or silence on the telephone. The love of the chestnut the jazz cap, and one hand on the wheel. No lust, no slam of the door, the love of the miniature orange tree, the clean white shirt, the hot evening shower, the highway that cuts across Florida. No waiting, no huffiness or rancor, just a twinge every now and then for the wren who had built her nest on a low branch overhanging the water And for the dead mouse, still dressed in its light brown suit. But my heart is always propped up in a field on its tripod, ready for the next arrow. After I carried the mouse by the tail to a pile of leaves in the woods, I found myself standing at the bathroom sink, gazing down affectionately at the soap. So patient and soluble, so at home in its pale green soap dish. I could feel myself falling again as I felt its turning in my wet hands and caught the scent of lavender and stone. Thank you very much for being so attentive. The ringer is over there, so I have to do it. Ding! (laughs) Have a good walk.